0: Welcome to Capital Radio by C-Funds. I'm Liz. And I am Lika. And in this podcast, we demystify the world of private equity and venture capital. As a globally active fund placement agency, every day we meet interesting people from all over the world. We want to share their stories with you.
1: Our guests are experienced investors and fund managers that will tell us what it takes to enter
0: the black box of private equity. Dear listeners, please keep in mind that this interview was recorded before the war in Ukraine started. Today's guest is Jorrit Dingemans. Jorrit is currently managing one of four teams in the private equity department of FMO, the Dutch Development Bank. FMO holds a portfolio of 197 investments, of which Jorrit's team overlooks a portfolio of 75 investments in funds and co-investments spread over Asia and Eastern Europe. The two objectives of his team are to manage this portfolio and to expand it with the aim to generate both commercial returns as well as development impact, in line with FMO's mission. In over 15 years at FMO, Jorrit has invested in financial institutions and soy traders in Latin America, ports and mines in Africa, and funds and corporates in Asia and Eastern Europe. And before FMO, he developed and built wind farms for the Dutch utility company Eneco Energy. He holds a master in system engineering, policy analysis and management from Delft University in the Netherlands.
1: Welcome Yorda, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, let's kick straight off. You studied at the Technical University in Delft and had more of a technical background with um, developing and building wind farms. I uh, would love to hear how you transitioned from the more technical side to working with the FMO as an investor in financial markets.
2: Yeah, sure. Well, it was a coincidence that I, I ran into the opportunity to to transfer to the um, financial services industry, and the um, the idea at the time was to um, to work internationally, which was not possible at the Dutch utility company where I um, then worked. So it seemed like a good, good opportunity to um, to switch. And I guess as an engineer, well, you're supposed to be good with numbers, so that that t- turned out to be very useful in the, um, in the bank as well. And I I guess additionally, it helps if you know the difference between a kilowatt and a kilowatt hour, Um, especially in financing energy projects, that's uh, that's pretty useful. So all all in all, it went rather smoothly.
0: Great to hear. And yeah, you said you talked about the international aspect. I think at FMO, that's at the core of what you do there because you invest in emerging markets all over the world. Could you tell us a bit more about the mandate of FMO?
2: So fmo was uh, was established in nineteen seventy as a um, as an alternative to traditional development aid, uh, which at the time was just about sort of wiring money from one government to the other. And the idea was that if you if you help the private sector develop that that is a more sustainable way of uh, of developing economies. So essentially the our mandate is to, to assist the private sector in emerging markets by, uh, offering financing solutions which are not available in those markets. So whether it's debt or, or equity, we try to provide something which is uh, which otherwise would not be um, accessible to entrepreneurs. And um, yeah, by helping the entrepreneurs grow, we um, hope to uh, further develop the, uh, the economies.
1: Super. And has the geographic scope of FMO remained the same right from the 1917s or have you expanded into different
2: markets? Um, well, we've not expanded into different markets. We sort of uh, limited the amount of markets where we were um, present. So, for example, at at the time uh, we were also still doing business in places like Russia, Brazil, Mexico, Kazakhstan, and China. And those larger markets, we've stopped being active in now the last couple of years also uh, as a um, as we came to the conclusion that, that those markets were already too developed or that if that our interventions were not material enough to justify our presence
1: makes sense sure and so then maybe if you can just redefine for us and also the listeners exactly in which markets you operate in because i think we also touched on latin america africa are you also
2: which countries in asia so we're active in 84 different countries. Yeah, so don't list them all then. <laughs> no, yeah, it's probably so. I'll keep it a bit a bit broad. <laughs> uh, so it's essentially Latin America, Africa, Asia and Eastern Europe. And then Eastern Europe would be everything which is not EU. And, and big cuts of exposure are traditionally we have in Africa, but also in India, Turkey, Argentina, those those types of markets.
1: The do's and don'ts. Of investing in those areas and whether you know in certain countries there are yeah i'm sure there are cultural aspects or parts of the economy that you need to be be mindful of yeah are there do's and don'ts for the geographies that you invest in
2: yeah there, there absolutely are <laughs> we found that the <laughs> hard way oh, yeah. and uh, bumped our noses a couple of times um, so I'll, I'll, I'll stick to the to the equity part and i'll, I'll, I'll start with the do's and and yeah, bear with me they may sound a bit like like kicking in open doors but they're they're very true so i guess the, one of the best recommendations that i would give any investor investing into emerging markets is to try to to invest into a business that 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 exports so the biggest risk in these markets is basically the depreciation of the local currency which really hits into your um, which hits your return and, and we found out that the only sort of hedge you can find against that is, is if you if you invest into an exporting company. Yeah, we found out to be very true in, in in multiple instances, and also the contrary that we invested in a in a company which was largely dependent on local currency revenues, and then yeah, in the end we got hit. So 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 the do automatically is also a don't. When it comes to uh, to those um, those types of businesses, and the the only other mitigant is if, if if you have a, a company that grows faster essentially than the depreciation of the local currency, so that would be the second do uh, yeah find it. invest in a company which is scalable. And the don't flip side to that is that we've also sort uh, of moment invested into a, into a factory which was essentially up to its capacity already, so they were at ninety nine percent, and then. Uh, once we were in there, we, we realized that, that there was no way to further grow the business without making substantial uh, new investments. So scalability of the underlying businesses is extremely um, important. And then I guess that the third do would be, and, and it's also a textbook example, but but sometimes we tend to forget it, it's, it's about thinking, what what is the inherent compet- competitive advantage of the underlying business? And maybe I I can give an example there. Uh, we invested into a um, crusher, sunflower oil crusher in Ukraine, and it's located next to a deep sea port, and that gives it a strategic advantage over crushers which are more located inland. And it, it it sounds like an open door, but it turned out to be uh, crucial in um, in the success of the investment. Yeah, w- while obvious still good to sometimes state the obvious, and I guess uh, two more on, on on the don't side, we we found out it's probably good if you're investing to to shy away from capex heavy uh, investments because that's in the end it it, it usually um, makes it more difficult. It's not it's not impossible, but it but it certainly um, hampers the, uh, the the growth possibilities of an investment. And the last one that I would mention is that if, if you get into a company, yeah, make sure you can also exit the company. And that's also stating the obvious, but, but still we've seen so many funds, but also ourselves taking minority positions in, in, in companies where in the end, the, the owner was never intending to, uh, to, to exit at a certain moment in time. So you, you can get in, but you can never get out. And the only way you can can get out is, is by selling back the shares to the to the owner, which is always at a discount to the fair value. So if you get into a company, think about how you can get out, and ideally through a, a control position. And yeah, like I said, we we found out the hard way that um, that often is true.
0: All valid points. And next to kind of the financial business do's and don'ts that you mentioned, have you also encountered cultural aspects of doing business? All around the world, in in different cultures, and do you have some interesting examples there as well?
2: Yeah. So have, having worked in in Latin America, Africa, Asia, and Eastern Europe, you you obviously see you see cultural differences. I, I guess my my main learning point has been over the years that that the uh, traditional open and direct Dutch approach probably is not <laughs> so successful. Yeah. Um, so uh, applying a more sort of modest sort of modest way of communication is is, is helpful and, and being patient is also important. And then for example, in I guess in most cultures outside of the Netherlands, it takes time to build a relationship, but also even in a meeting. I mean, you never start by diving into the uh, the commercial details of a deal, but you you take your time, talk about uh, anything which comes to mind, uh, world affairs, but also lo- local specifics, the, the weather, the food. <laughs> and then maybe at the end, uh, you touch upon the um, the commercial details. And I guess in, in Dutch culture, you would do it the other way around. Yeah, like I said, that's not always the most uh, successful approach.
0: <laughs> Funny. Interesting to hear. And Jorrit, you, you also mentioned that you believe in alternative structures of funding which I think has been a bit of a new development at, at FMO as well, uh, specifically managed account structures. Could you please explain what this is and why you believe that this is better than a traditional funding structure?
2: Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's better, but it's definitely better in certain circumstances. So what we at, at FMO, we, we manage a portfolio of about 197 uh, different fund investments. And we've been investing in funds since, um, probably 2004-ish. So we've, we've by now seen a lot of emerging markets, private equity funds through their life cycle. And we've, we've sort of seen what, what can go right and what can go wrong. Um. And the traditional fund model isn't always the best. The best model. It it works really well if you've got a, an established fund manager who who can fundraise, who can who's successful in, in raising the second and the third and the fourth um, fund vintage, and and as long as the uh, as the IRRs are attractive to investors, it's it's all fine. But especially in cases, for example, where you have a, a starting fund manager who's Having difficulties to to, to fundraise, then, then a managed account structure may be more more uh, interesting. And the, the way that we've sort of structured these types of instruments, is that we we come into contact with with a, with a team who is sitting on one or two deals that they really want to do, but they're saving it because they they are waiting for the, the fundraise to become successful and raise a fund, and, that, and they're struggling with that. And at a certain moment in time, the, uh, the, the liquidity dries up and, and then they're stuck. So in, in two instances, or two and a half, I should say, what we basically did is we, we set up a fund structure with one OP, be, being ourselves, and we, uh, we funded the first investment with the team. The The interesting part for us is that, that we basically get access to good deal flow without uh, having to pay management fees over over committed small investment amounts. And we have control in the in sense that, that if if, if we if, if the fund manager identifies a, a next investment, then we can either fund it through the structure or we don't. Uh, so so you eliminate the blind pool risk. So it, 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 it works well on our side. and also for the for the team, it's nice because they they get to build up track records by really really investing, uh, albeit for, for only one LP. Uh, but they get access to to management fees, which which they can uh, use to build a team. They uh, they build up a track record, which in the end um, benefits the, uh, the fundraising efforts, and um, and they get access uh, to carry it. So it may even be uh, economically very interesting. So we're we're experimenting with this uh, this instrument more and more. It's also a lot of work to be honest about that. But yeah, for now it it seems to um, that the the work um, the benefits outweigh the uh, the additional effort.
1: Great, and and you know, does the due diligence process differ then? Is it more intensive for this managed account? So, I can imagine you already have the visibility on, say, the one or two deals they have in the pipeline that they haven't been able to action upon. So you can really go and, I guess, really assess the quality of the underlying deals. But in other ways, does the process differ between that of a blind pool fund investment?
2: Yeah, it, it definitely differs because in in a blind pool situation we would not engage ourselves with the uh, the uh, due diligence and fully delegate that to the fund manager. In the case of managed accounts, given that we we would be providing the majority of the funding to the underlying deal, we would also want to participate 100 in the in the due diligence, including site visits and and doing all the all the necessary checks. So it it, it is definitely more intensive, but at the same time you also get a much better idea of what you're stepping into.
1: Absolutely. And perhaps you have an example of an investment in a managed account or one of, one of the two that you're able to share with us?
2: Yeah, it's actually the uh, the sunflower oil uh, seed crusher in, yeah. in <laughs> yeah. Ukraine that I mentioned earlier, nice. um, which we did uh, through a managed account structure.
1: Excellent. Okay, got it. So as a DFI active in so many emerging markets, we know that you have an impact in a lot of countries. Can you explain what your impact goals are?
2: Uh, yes, absolutely. So it's it's a good question. Um, I guess it starts off with the, the creating development impact is at, at the core of what we do. So essentially, anything we do, all our investments that we uh, that we do, they should contribute either to growth in jobs, combat climate change, or reducing inequalities, or a combination of those uh, those items. So that means that for every fund investment that we do, for example, we we include reporting requirements on these indicators in the documentation. What it boils down to is that as a development bank, we in everything we do, we need to be able to justify that, that we contribute to our vision, which is to build a planet where 9 million people can live well in 2050.
0: And a bit of a separate question, maybe more on FMO as a company and as a development finance institution, the feedback that we often receive from other DFIs is um, that they would also like to come on board if there is another DFI on board. So our vision is that all the DFIs, at least in Europe, are very, uh, very well connected. We were wondering how do those relationships look like, for example, between FMO um, and DEG, BIO um, and Proparco, how does that look like?
2: Yeah, I I can only confirm your observation. We. in, in the end, the number of investment professionals which which are doing the investments into the, into funds, for example, in emerging markets, at the different DFIs are all the same people. So we know each other well. We we run into each other um, when we have advisory committee meetings, uh, when we do uh, when there are AGMs. Um, so you, you basically bump into the same people all the time. So there's there's an there's a very strong informal connection, and the um, especially in in the equity field where we all feel and we all recognize that um, yeah, the more eyes uh, you have to, to review in a potential investment, the better. So we, 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 we tend to um, informally discuss a lot and we try to team up as much as possible as well. In, indeed, if, you, if you've got one DFI convinced to be the anchor in your fund, uh, there's a high likelihood that others will, will follow. So it's very informal. It's not so formalized.
0: Yeah, so everyone still does their own individual due diligence, right? On the on the funds and company. Interesting. And then in that sense, um, you
1: know, what does a typical day in your life at FMO look like? Is it really really different every day, or um, do you kind of block out specific period of time for kind of recurring activities?
2: So in in, in my case, the um, a lot of the day I'm involved with um, managing the team. I had a team of uh, of eleven people and that's quite quite a large group so there's a lot of day to day activities which um, i think 50 at least 50% of my time is uh, is involved with with managing the team i guess the other 50% is is split between um, in, in investment work so basically reviewing Portfolio reports, but also investment proposals, um, being on the um, internal committees that review investments. And then there's there's an, there's an element, say, in internal matters, which um, uh, FMO being a growing organization is, is also an, um, uh, requires a material um, amount of my time.
1: Sure, and the way you know, I've heard the saying in the Netherlands is is uh, the question of like, what gives you energy? So, I guess, what what's your favorite aspect of the things you've said? Is it the reviewing the portfolio companies, or are you really enjoying, I guess, managing the team? What gives you the most energy?
2: So, there's definitely there's two things. The uh, managing the personal development of the people in my team is something that I get a lot of energy out. Especially seeing them grow, putting them in situations where they get tested and then uh, can sort of um, outperform their own ambitions. That's that's one. And the and the other one, of course, the interaction with counterparts in the emerging markets. So unfortunately, that that has been very limited over the last two years, or at least. It's been virtual, but not uh, not on the ground. But we uh, slowly uh, traveling is picking up again. So I'm really looking forward to uh, to my next trip.
0: Yeah, let's let's hope that traveling will be will be possible again soon. And thank you very much for giving this overview of your job and I think also the developments that FMO is going through. So as a final question, in what ways do you hope to see FMO develop in the next 10 years?
2: Oh, that's a very uh, big question.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> any views on this or any yeah, no, small and, things, and, and, big things?
2: I, th- I think two two things. So I I, I hope that FMO... Can can further grow to become an in 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 a leading impact investor in for emerging markets. I think we 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 have the uh, the foundations to to do so. We basically built on our experience, but also built on a on a fantastic group of people in the organization, and our uh, forty years plus experience. Um, so so that's one. But at, at the same time, in, in, in a growing organization, it's also um, over, over time you lose, uh, you lose flexibility and, and efficiency, somewhat firepower. So I hope that, that, um, that FMO will be able to, to achieve this without sacrificing on, on things like efficiency. And uh, so if we, if we manage that, so growing while staying effective and important, uh, I think we've done really well. So, so that would be my, uh, my ambition.
0: Nice. Great. Cool. So this this was the first part of the interview you with. Um And if you're ready, we will move to the last and final part, the fire round. So this consists of two separate sections. The first section is a couple of short questions, and we would like you to answer just the first thing on top of your mind that comes to mind. And the second part, Liz, Liz will shortly explain after that. Um, so if you're ready, we will get started. It's absolutely okay, fine. Yeah. All right. What is your morning coffee order?
2: Black coffee.
1: Nice. And if you could have one superpower,
2: what would it be? Flying.
0: Cool. And what book are you currently reading?
2: Bullshit Jobs.
0: And what about three traits
2: that make a successful LP? Experience, helicopter view, and modesty.
1: Great, thank you. And now we'll just move to the last part, which we call underrated or overrated. So I'm just going to mention a couple of few topics, Jordan. And if you could tell me just immediately whether your um, response to the topic is whether you think it's overrated or underrated. So I'll start off with a 2% GP commitment.
2: It's underrated. Perfect.
1: And what about Twitter? Overrated. And oat milk?
2: Overrated
1: about in-person portfolio company due diligence
2: underrated
1: right and TikTok overrated right and finally what about the Dutch croquettes a bit of
2: underrated
1: fantastic agreed agreed (laughs) (laughs) the only right answer (laughs) I know (laughs) all right thank you so much for your time we really really enjoyed speaking with you and learning all about your activities and, and all that you do in emerging markets so we really appreciate it thanks so much
2: pleasure